0: This is the
1: Ritz and Cures Podcast. Welcome to Ritz and Cures for this week. We're joined once again by Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea. Hello, Bill. Hi, Lindy. And Melbourne GP in Dr. Nick Carr. Hi, Doctor Nick. Oh,
0: well, hi Lindy. I was listening to you talking about fairies. So I've just finished Hannah Kent's new book, which is called The Good People, all about the fairies in Ireland. Is that right? It's Wonderful book. So we She's move away from fairy writer. tales to a tale about fairies. <laughs> I, I strongly recommend people have a look at that. It's a lovely book. That yeah. sounds
1: delightful. I've got to find a bit of summer reading, so that could be the direction that I'll take. Tonight on Rich and Curious, we're going to be talking about private health funds, whether they're actually worth the money. Is private health insurance worth the money anymore? And our special guest will be Ian McCauley from the University of Canberra. But first up, it's all about blood pressure. Uh, because honestly, it it's so
2: angry. This topic. <laughs>
1: I knew you'd jump in with that. You couldn't help yourself. I just thought if there's anybody who's come up with that topic, it's got to be Bill. Bill's just going, I need to talk about my blood pressure. Okay. So high blood pressure. Let's. Start, I want to start at the beginning, Nick, which is about the idea of how one measures your blood pressure in the first place. So that's the one where they put the thing around your yeah, arm and go- Yeah, it's the
0: squeezy psh, psh, thing, psh, psh, that wonderful psh, psh, thing called a sphygmomanometer, oh, which no one can spell or even say. Oh. Uh, and it's, people think it's a very simple thing. You just whack the cuff on, measure your blood pressure, but it's surprisingly difficult to get accurate blood pressure measurements. I used to give a whole one-hour lecture to the medical students on how to take blood pressure because it's so fraught with error. Uh, Many people will be aware that the old way we used to do it with uh, machines and doctors with stethoscopes and so on is largely now being superseded by automatic machines. And there are probably some big advantages in that because that rules out a lot of what we call observer errors because it's remarkable how inaccurate doctors and nurses are when they take – blood pressures manually
1: so what are you actually measuring Yeah, so we have so we
0: have two readings it's called the systolic and the diastolic a lot of people will know your doctor says, oh your blood pressure is 130 over 80 that's lovely what on earth does that mean Mm. well the top reading the 130 is when your heart is pumping so that's the peak pressure when the blood's coming out and then the lower reading the diastolic is when the heart's relaxing so these are the peaks and troughs of your blood pressure, and so, both, both of them are important. So what are good numbers? So the textbook normal is 120 over 80. Very roughly, 140 over 90 is getting a bit borderline. 160 over 100, we're starting to say problem might need to think about treatment. But it varies hugely, depend on all sorts of other risk factors. Mm. So
1: yeah. when you say 120 over 80 is optimum, so- 120
0: it, over 60 or 80? 120 over 80. Yeah. yeah. So
1: it, what if it, can it be 110?
0: Oh, yes. So oh, okay. The, so yeah. a lot of healthy people, people who are very fit and active, athletes and so on, have much lower blood pressures. If you take the blood pressure of an average 10-year-old, it'll often be 90 over 60, 100 over 50. Lovely. Um, blood pressure tends to rise with age in Western society. Uh, we don't really know why, because uh, they've done some studies. They've, uh, there's a group in the uh, Southern Amazon Basin of Venezuela, the Yamamami Indians. Poor people who get invaded by anthropologists because they live a traditional lifestyle, and their blood pressure doesn't. Rise with age. But in westernized societies, for combinations that are complicated about how we live, our blood pressures go up as we get older.
1: Is that because the, the tubes that the blood runs through, veins, arteries? arteries. Arteries. arteries, arteries. Yes. arteries. So those are getting clogged, more clogged. Yeah, that's the uh, word, Lindy, uh, isn't it? Uh, clogged-er. Much more clogged.
0: Yeah. <laughs> beautifully put uh, yes the arteries are getting a bit stiffer a whole load of factors are coming into play some of those are hormonal to do with kidneys and that sort of thing but for one reason or another our blood pressures tend to rise as we get older
2: so if you bring down someone's blood pressure aren't there uh, aren't there side effects like dizziness so the the particularly we, for older people who might be Prone to falling over.
0: Yeah. So we know that as blood pressure rises, it's increased risks of things like heart attacks and strokes, particularly lots of other things like kidney disease. If the blood pressure is lower, then that makes you safer. But it's assumed that bringing it down with medication is as good as having a lower blood pressure in the first place, which may be the case, but you're quite right. There can be adverse effects of taking medication. So to
2: elderly people who are unstable- you might be better off copying the high blood pressure so than a fall.
0: So particularly as we get older treating blood blood pressure becomes a little bit more borderline about, about whether it's worth doing. Now, we know there have been studies. They've actually done studies on people over the age of 75, and they've shown that medication does reduce risk of things like heart attacks and strokes. But there is a balance then against exactly what you're saying, Bill, side effects, and one of those might be people having high risk of falls.
2: Okay, so should I t- stay off the chips with uh, salted nuts and salted chips?
0: Ah, yes. The, the, the vexed does, question is salt and blood pressure. Does
2: it cause high blood pressure?
0: No Salt does not cause blood pressure, but it's probably one of the contributing factors. But the question then arises whether reducing your salt makes any difference. And it's often been said that to reduce your salt enough to reduce your blood pressure, it doesn't make you live longer. It just makes it seem longer. (laughs) Because <laughs>
1: the diet is so awful. Yeah. It's
0: just yeah. like living an eternity. Salt free, everything. Solf- salt free is really hard. I mean, the standard advice is to try and reduce salt where you can, but it should be part of a raft of measures around lifestyle, not just salt. it on doesn't its own. cause hypertension, does it? Blood pr- salt high on blood its own pressure. does not cause hypertension. Is on hypertension, its
1: own. high blood pressure?
0: Hypertension, high blood pressure synonymous. The same, yeah, thing. same thing. But
2: we've all been told if you stay off the salt, you won't get hypertension. Because it's got some causal link. Well, you weren't but, told that by me. No. Well, <laughs> I, I'll
0: check the files. I'll go back to the recordings. <laughs> no. but, uh, but it's a myth then, is it? Because yeah, w- It's not as simple as salt causes high blood pressure. Something to do with Western societies so, causes high blood pressure. So once pressure, you've so got, got high blood,
2: once you've got it, you should stay off or have a lower salt diet.
0: So there are lots of things we should do if our blood pressure is rising to try and manage that. Reducing salt is just one little bit of it. Uh, we talk about the, the, lots of these lovely acronyms like SNAP and DASH. Uh, SNAP stands for smoking, nutrition, alcohol and I've forgotten what the last one is. <laughs> P. P uh, physical P. exercise. Right, P it. for physical exercise. Yeah. Uh, Recognising yeah. that lots of things are important. Reducing and stopping smoking, reducing alcohol, eating well in a general sense, and then moving. A lot of people have high blood pressure because they don't move enough. Mm. And, and
2: is, uh, is it a cause of DVTs, having high blood pressure or bad, you know, thick
0: veins? It, it's not. Clog, clogged, clogged, clogged. What, what's the word? Clogged. <laughs> more clogged arteries. More clogged arteries. Is that like you delete DVT to... is more common in people who have high blood pressure because they tend to have higher risk factors for vascular disease generally. So if you're on a plane, you should be, be very careful. Yeah, or people you walk walk if you
1: have high blood pressure, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: there's a number of texts. Uh, first one says: So Nick, if I use that pumpy uppy thing, I can give myself in the chemist. Is that reliable? To... <laughs> Apparently, can you do that in the? Can yeah, you actually so check they, your blood pressure? But in the these are
0: automatic machines that are usually quite good, so long as they've been calibrated. I mean, in our practice, we have a, uh, our machines tested and calibrated every six months because they need to be checked. They're just they're pieces of machinery; they go wrong. Okay. Yeah, you're just trying to guard your patch. That's all you're yeah. doing. So is. Uh,
1: does eating garlic make a difference to blood pressure, says another text.
0: Uh, I wish we could say for certain that eating garlic does, but there's, there's a lot of that sort of dietary stuff where you cannot say one thing is going to make a difference. It causes halitosis, doesn't it? It probably keeps people away, which might keep your blood pressure Maybe down. It but garlic on its own is not a treatment for blood pressure. Healthy diet in a general sense with lots of fruit and veggies and grains and so on and not too much saturated fat. On the other oh, hand, no, that salt. is. And oh, no salt.
1: So yeah. is blood pressure your your blood pressure reading an indication of the health of your heart or the health of your arteries?
0: It's a it's a bit of a circular phenomenon. So high blood pressure risks damage to the heart damage to the heart, risks increasing blood pressure, and it goes in a bit of a cycle. So blood pressure is just a marker for risk, and particularly the things it's a risk for is heart attack and stroke.
1: So I know some people who are on up to three, maybe more medications, separate medications for blood pressure. Is that normal?
0: So treating blood pressure is actually remarkably hard. Uh, Only about one third of people with blood pressure that requires treatment will get away with a single medication. So... Two-thirds or more of people will require two or more medications. So it's quite common. And we actually prefer two or three medications at lower dose because there are fewer side effects than one or two at high dose. So it's common that we mix medications. So don't think think your doctor's gone bonkers if they say, well, we're going to add another and another. That's a common way we manage blood pressure.
2: What about blood thinners? So heparin, not not heparin. Not but
0: heparin, but aspirin, low-dose aspirin. Yeah. A lot of people with high blood pressure are at overall higher risk of vascular problems like heart attack and stroke. And so a lot of those people are advised to use low-dose Cle- aspirin. By cl- or Clexane after you've had surgery. So Clexane, we're getting a little bit more pointy end, orthopedic surgery, that sort of thing. Ha- has,
1: stuff, has treatment of high blood pressure changed much over the years? Or just, or just the medications got more pinpointed. Uh, <laughs> My the, vocabulary tonight is fantastic,
0: uh, isn't it? <laughs> when I was a medical student, there was this revolution in the treatment of blood pressure because these things called the ACE inhibitors came in and the, the advertisements were people skipping through fields because they had no side effects. Right. Because it really was the first group of blood pressure medications that were remarkably side effect-free. We've had a couple of other groups since then. Um, We haven't had anything really new with blood pressure for quite a few years because we've got a series of groups that actually work very well.
1: Okay, that's good to hear. Um, And just to round things off... Carl says, sorry, just tuned in. Can Nick give an explanation of what blood pressure is again? So just a quick one of in the in and out bit.
0: Okay, so we've got two readings, the higher and the lower, and the higher reading is when the heart pumps, and so you might get a reading 120, or if it's too high 160. When the heart relaxes, you get your lower reading, 80 if it's normal, 100 if it's a bit high, and that gives you your two readings, systolic and diastolic. And Carl, get the podcast, you'll hear it all. <laughs> exactly
1: right, Carl. I don't know why I gave in to you. I'm just feeling very good tonight. Mm. This is Rits and Cures. In a moment, we're going to be talking about uh, private health insurance. Is it worth it or are we just being conned? This is Rits and Cures with Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea, Melbourne GP and Dr Nick Carr. And our special guest tonight is Ian McCauley. He's a lecturer in public sector finance and public policy at the University of Canberra. His research and teaching interests are in the fields of public sector management and public policy. He's got qualifications, though, in engineering, interestingly enough, and management from the University of Adelaide and public administration from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. He's a frequent contributor to The Conversation and has published extensively on a range of public policy issues, including private health insurance. He was a co-author with John Menadieu of an important paper on private health insurance in 2012 called Private Health Insurance, High in Cost, Low in Equity. And already the fact that we're talking about private coverage for health tonight has prompted numerous texts into the program, which is always a good sign. Ian, welcome, and thank you so much for coming down. Uh, Lindy, pleased to be here. It's lovely to have you along. Remember, if you don't want to text in at 0437 774 774. Bill, you have the first question tonight. I never give that to you, but I'm I'm feeling lenient. You could have called me Dorothy. (laughs) (laughs) I could. Dorothy. Ian, what is the
2: subsidy for private health (laughs) (laughs) insurers each year in
3: Australia?
1: Well, I well, you should ask. That. It's
3: rather <laughs> a lot of money. Uh, where a lot of people look up the budget papers and say, oh, oh, six billion a year. Billion? Billion? Six billion, yeah. The one with the big B in front of it, you know, the nine zeros. Um, we're talking about, you know, lots of uh, uh, submarines or other things like that.
1: So explain that. So the government, the federal government, pays private health companies to the tune of six no.
3: billion. No. Oh, no, it's just That's, a, that's only the start of it. That's, that's what comes in the rebate, the 30% or so rebate, a bit less than 30%, but that's what comes in the rebate. Then then there's another $5 billion in what we call revenue foregone because uh, there are all sorts of deals where people are not paying tax because they've got private health insurance. For example... People with reasonably high incomes who take out private health insurance to avoid the Medicare levy surcharge avoid that surcharge, and that in itself is three billion dollars a year gone. So you add all of these bits and pieces up, and you get at least eleven billion dollars. So we're starting to talk about real money
2: every year. Every year, eleven thousand million dollars <laughs> every year. I had no idea before we researched this topic that this was. And if you'd, you know, if you had a trivial pursuit night, there's no way I'd have got near $11 billion. So uh, is the answer to try and get some of this back into the public health system?
3: Well, one fairly clear answer is to try to bypass the insurers because what uh, they'd love to see themselves as part of the health system, but they're not. They're just a financial intermediary taking rather a lot of money on the way through. Uh, a, 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 a typical sort of figure is that while Medicare takes and the tax office between them take about five cents on the dollar... 95 cents of what you pay uh, through Medicare and the tax system comes back into healthcare. But that figure is 17 cents in the dollar for pr- private insurance. So only 83 cents in the dollar comes back to healthcare.
1: And the rest goes to shareholders? Oh,
3: to shareholders and executives. People, executives. And there's a lovely there's a beautiful new medic building. Bank private building yes. here and they didn't have that um, before they um, floated no uh, uh, yeah, i'm afraid um, you know uh, the uh, medicare operates out of rather boring canberra bureaucratic uh, buildings you know without so, the- so
1: what about those who have been beneficiaries over the years of their private health coverage when they've needed it who, who say, well, actually, my experience has been that I got a very good service as a result of being part of uh, of, a, of a private health um, system, a hmm. scheme, and uh, I was able to get treatment much more quickly than I would have otherwise. You know, is, it, is it sort of six of one, half a dozen of the other? Can that offset all of this extra expense?
3: Over a lifetime, not really, Lindy. Um, certainly, older people who have been contributing for a long, long time... Um, and we're talking about people generally over 55 you know, right through to, to ancient ages like the people sitting around the table here. No, sorry, not you.
1: No, 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 I'm still there. <laughs> I in mean it, yeah. Uh, uh,
3: they can generally benefit, but if they go and add up what they've been paying over their lifetime, it, it's been a dreadful deal. Uh, I, I mean I once worked out that uh, if, for instance, you hadn't paid any premiums over your lifetime and uh, – put all of that money into you know, a reasonable sort of index fund or whatever uh, and paid out all of your health bills without any private health insurance um, in top hospitals. Uh, uh, and f- for the average person, you'd by the time you died, you'd have about 100000 left over for okay, your weight.
1: In- so that's an interesting point that you raised, though, about the idea of instead of putting it, to these companies that you in fact had invested it elsewhere, or even just i don 't know put it under your pillow that 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 you, you would have come out ahead, but isn 't the fact that we tend not to do that that we would probably have spent that money, so when a crisis does arise medically that we if we are covered by private health, then at least we can get treatment
3: well when the when the crisis arrives medically let's public <laughs> let 's talk exactly. about an accident, a stroke, it's a heart true. attack um There's a very good public hospital system there, and indeed, the uh, waiting times in private in public hospitals have decreased over the years. We have an excellent system. It passes the test, of course. Some people have to wait. What private insurance covers generally: uh, maternity cases, fairly predictable, and hips and knees. um, The the profitable stuff. Well, the Uh, the, the straightforward stuff. Yeah, in and out. So if you're really crook. The
2: only place to go is a, <clears throat> is a tertiary public hospital, isn't it?
3: Oh, uh, pretty well. Um, and you will be looked after very well. We've well, got if you're chronically experience. sick. If you're chronically sick, you're going to have complex conditions. And th- th- this is a, a, another area to go to, and it's about the whole direction of our healthcare system.
1: Well, speaking about that, isn't one of the reasons why the public system is doing a little better, the lists are going down, is because some of those cases are taken off their hands by a private system? Ah,
3: that's the, that's the story. That's the one that um, various health ministers from Tony Abaddon have been saying takes pressure off the public hospitals. They forget about the other side of it. The private hospitals actually take resources out. Where the money is, the surgeons go, which... Uh, and the other uh, specialists head off to the private sector. So uh, while someone who has um, uh, private health insurance and uses a private hospital, say, for a hip replacement, gets right up to the front of the queue, someone else in the public sector is pushed further behind in the queue. So it's really just reshuffling the queue. So the queue
1: exists, but it's... No, so so to me, it seems, I'm terrible at maths. It seems to me that the queue exists, but it's being, it's being sort of spread across different resources. Uh,
3: exactly. Some people are given this break uh, called private health insurance with the help of uh, p- uh, private hospitals to say, "Hey, look, we can get you out of the queue and put you in the in the front." But doesn't uh, that
1: move the person in the public hospital f- closer to the front of their line?
0: Uh, no, no, the no because the surgeon's oh, not a worker. So, so, okay,
1: so it's the people who actually yeah, do but, the surgery.
0: But isn't this the whole point of a private system because it is meant to be, it actually is a two-tier system. So it's saying if you want to pay some extra, we can get you there up front with a more gold star service. Um, And if you don't want to pay the money, well, you can have a slightly less gold star service somewhere else. Isn't that the whole point?
3: Well, that is certainly one way of presenting it, that uh, public hospitals are there for the poor or the indigent, to use that ghastly American term. But guess what? Australians rather like the idea of one good high quality level of public goods i mean we we may accept that some people have a mercedes and some have a corolla yeah that's fine but when it comes to healthcare, we tend to be more uh what was the term I used? more egalitarian more socialist we don't have areas we have different areas in our lives where we want to share somewhere we want to be looked after uh, where we want to trust ourselves to the market but health care is certainly one of those areas in our lives where people want to share with others
2: what you haven't said
3: about public
2: um about private health cover is that you don't get it for free when you turn up at a private hospital you have a co-payment i mean i, I mean i've got extras and i, I have my teeth cleaned um Last week, you know, oral hygiene, because it's to prevent cavities and, it's a, and make your gums healthy. That, yes. I'm not sure that, was done, that wasn't done in a private hospital. It was done on Medibank. Oh, sorry. It was done with the private health fund extras. <laughs> $239 it cost. And know what I got back? $24. 10%. 10%. Now, I'm paying 400 a month or something for this privilege. And I'm getting 24 bucks back. Now, the point of having your teeth cleaned is to stop claims, it's to stop cavities, it's to preserve your gums. And you get 24 bucks back. Now, where's the value in that for me?
3: Oh, for you. Sorry, I thought you were going to say, Bill, where's the value in that? It's very valuable. It's very valuable for the private health insurers. In fact, those ancillary. That ancillary cover uh, is really a big money spinner for the private insurers. Yeah, the private insurers are not making a lot of money on their hospital cover. They're making money on insurance that people really don't need. And ancillary cover is a classic case because apart from ambulance cover, it is all capped. Um, in other words, it's not really insurance, it's simply. A bit of help. Mm. 10% in your case, Bill. I paid my bus fare to the dentist. Just a little bit of help in paying a bill and of course that would be more than absorbed in the admin costs. Yeah.
1: It's a text that says, thank you for talking about private health. My question, wouldn't the health system be better off paying our premiums into a government managed fund instead of shareholders pockets? I really don't get how the system works.
3: <laughs> well, that's exactly what we are talking about. The Yeah, all of that money heading off into profits, administrative costs, marketing costs. Salaries. uh, Yeah, Um, and and of course the other thing uh, we haven't mentioned is that the single national insurer like uh, Medicare, like um, the UK national health system, they've really got the capacity to control what hospitals and surgeons and others pay. Um, whereas once you get a fragmented private health insurance system, such as we have in the U.S., which is a classic case, um, the private insurers just have to pay up and pass it on to the people eventually paying the premiums, whatever the hospitals and specialists demand. So there are huge economies in having a single national insurer, but some people say, oh, aren't you talking about socialised medicine? We're talking about something out of the Soviet Union in the 60s. And no, we're talking about a, a single national funding scheme not a single national delivery scheme, because there's no reason why private hospitals cannot come into that same
0: scheme. And Ian, I did my training and did my early work in the National Health Service when private insurance was very rare amongst the patients I worked with in the early 80s. And I was a huge fan of that single nationally insured, in a sense, scheme that you're talking about. But... That's changing. Um, the, the National Health Service is struggling. Uh, the private sector is booming in the UK because people are seeing that that system has let them down. So how do you reconcile? I mean, I'm, I'm with you because I would be all for that. But I also see that worldwide there's a move away from um, governments funding a national health service and the people who can afford to buying what they see as a better service.
3: Well, yeah, to an extent, you'll never, you'll never uh, have the super rich, um, you know, Kerry Packer or whoever the present super rich are aren't going to uh, buy into that uh, system. But yeah, as long as you can get ninety nine percent of your population, that's fine. And that's what the Nordic countries are doing, and they control that. They have one really novel approach: let's make public services as efficient as possible. They do contract to private hospitals, but they also uh, give a fair go to public hospitals, and they do have, for those that can afford it, reasonably high co-payments. But they're capped co-payments. None of this, um, uh, you know, suddenly getting a bill and not knowing what it was going to be. It's it's in the order of a thousand dollars maximum you'll pay out a year.
2: Well, you can pay up to twenty-seven, thirty thousand for an operation here in private. Yeah, co-payment. Oh.
3: And is that insurance when you're left bearing the open-ended risk? To mm. me, it's just, as uh, one of my co- uh, colleagues, my uh, academic colleagues, uh, Louis Silvner, said, this is just a bit of help paying the bill and leaving you bearing the open-ended risk.
1: Ian McCauley it's here. We're talking... Private health insurance and whether or not it is still something that we should be pursuing here in Australia as um, medicine policy. Well, you remember you can text in on zero four three seven 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 four seven seven four. One has done that, saying, "Bill, you need to change your dentist." Uh, you get a free <laughs> dental scale and clean each year if your dentist was part of a preferred network. Says another uh, one that says, "What about the long wait lists for care?" In public hospitals, some people wait for years. You can understand if you're in that situation. That's mythical. I don't think that's true anymore. Can not actually ask the person who's in the medical business whether that's true?
0: I think waiting for years is not my experience, but certainly if you've got someone who needs, say, and what Ian was saying, the classic hips and knees, uh, so hip replacements, someone might wait for many months up to 12 or 18 On a waiting list in the public system, in some instances, whereas of course privately they can go and get that done pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. So, and there would be some people who who don't want to do that, if they can afford it. I think that's the big difference yeah, here too.
3: I, I had the answer given to me by ABC on uh, that old program, Australia Talks Back. Yep. And I, I was a so-called academic uh, expert and wasn't quite getting through. And the very last call was a lady called Trish from Tusmore uh, Tuzmoor is a fa- fairly well-off suburb of Adelaide. And she said, hey, look, I'm Trish from Tuzmoor. I've heard that uh, academic chap talking about private health insurance and saying we shouldn't have it. Well, I've got it. Uh, and I needed a, a procedure recently, uh, and I got right to the front of the queue. I think everyone should have it. <laughs> and so yeah, that was exactly the, the point. you shuffling the queue around. Well, yeah,
2: what sort yeah. of a business model, though, is it for an insurer to have um, young people dropping off? I mean, insurance has to have non-claimants in the pool, to be profitable or to be successful. You can't have the only subscriber or the only members being people over 55 who are the high claimants. So it's a failed business model, isn't it? Isn't that what Morgan Stanley is saying?
3: Well, Morgan Stanley are advising, they're they're certainly not ideological as far as I know, they're not on the left of politics, Uh, but they're, they're saying, hey, look, this is a risky business to invest your money in because its business model is not lasting. The business model worked pretty well for quite a few years from the time when the Howard government reintroduced subsidies for private health insurance at the beginning of this century. And at that time, incomes for everyone were rising, uh, and a lot of people took it out with all that. Uh, some people remember the Run for Cover campaign and and uh, you know, get in now before you've got to pay a penalty if you get in later. People have had it for some time, but over the last uh, few years, particularly the last three years, people have started to review all of their discretionary expenditure, and let's look at private health insurance. I've been paying it out and never made a claim. That can go, or I've had it all these years. I made a claim, and uh, I had this massive uh, co-payment, as, uh, as we're talking about, or. Um, uh, I had an accident. I got straight into uh, public hospital, got excellent treatment. I never knew you could do that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, people are dropping it, and the people dropping it are the people, the younger
1: people who actually pay for it, who actually ke- uh, yeah. keep the system uh, afloat uh,
3: and uh, uh, yeah, the, the rest of the pool is getting older and
0: but in- well, particularly
1: now the, the pool is going to get older no matter w- whether a bunch of young people pull out or not, because just in terms of what what our demographics are
0: but just to play devil's advocate for a moment, isn't that why we need a co-payment so that the young people who can afford to are encouraged to stay in private health insurance even though they may not use it, so there they subsidising the older people and if they choose not to they're paying a whacking great slug of tax. Isn't that a good thing?
3: Well we've got a fairly good system and it's called the Australian Tax Office to do just that. Uh, I mean short of forcing people to have private health insurance which uh, is the (coughs) case in Netherlands, uh, what's the difference as uh, as I would say as an academic between uh, private insurance when it's made compulsory or near compulsory and tax? It's simply Uh, a a financial intermediary, a high-cost one, Doing what the Australian Tax Office Should does. Should be doing anyway. Yeah. It does anyway. It does far better. We don't love taxes, but uh, it doesn't matter whether they're private understand. or Well, public. we try sort to of
1: understand why we do it and, mm. and, and what, it, what it does in order to make a, a better society for us to live in. I want to get to some texts because there's so many of them. Uh, one that says, Ian, have, have you and your colleagues checked profit margins of private hospitals or pharmaceutical companies and prosthesis manufacturers and salaries of specialists within these particular private institutions?
3: Well, yes, and they tend to be very, very high, partly through patent systems, such for for pharmaceuticals, um, partly just through sheer market power. And indeed, the private insurers have been concerned about the cost of prostheses and the government is trying to do something about that These are the... What's in- subsidizing it for them Well yeah, essentially making the government the the, the, the contractor and they, they can buy at the government price Strangely enough though the government is not taking on the other people driving the costs um, who are the mainly in, in uh, private hospitals the surgeons uh, who some of whom are the anaesthetists and surgeons some of whom are doing very well it's all it's very easy for the government it uh, doesn't matter whether it's left or right to take on those evil pharmaceutical companies overseas or the foreign manufacturers of prostheses it's much harder politically to take on the colleges of uh, specialists but Uh,
0: Ian, I'm sorry, I have to defend my colleagues who are in the private hospitals. I mean, some of those surgeons and anaesthetists who are doing very well are working incredible hours. They're working flat chat and they're doing an enormous mm. amount of very high-pressure work, and they are earning their money. Um, that's one of the reasons we have a private system. But are the but,
2: people in the public sector who do the same work and get a fraction of the cost not earning their money?
0: I'm not for a moment saying anything against the Same people, length no, of against, list? I'm not for a moment saying that people in the public sector aren't earning their money. However, I know that the people who do this kind of work in the private sector work many, <laughs> sometimes much longer hours under much greater pressure, and they really churn through the work in a way that in a public system they don't necessarily do so. I'm just saying that they are earning their keep. It's not
1: they're just uh, just standing there. uh mm. some more texts. One that says my wife had her thyroid removed six years ago. Private health. 5000 out of pocket. The only good part was we are self-employed and so we had to choose when to have the operation instead of eight-month wait. Uh, we weren't happy, but we still have insurance to this day. Uh, Abby says, my partner is American and healthcare was the main reason we chose to live here. No one here can really understand what it's like dealing with the U.S. system. Our private health system and costs is nothing in comparison. Our system is worth preserving as it is and I I mean making that comparison I totally understand why but as you're saying Ian there are other parts other countries in the world that are doing it better Uh, one that says scrap private health subsidies and just fund public health Uh, Ryan says I did the sums for myself I cancelled my private health insurance put the same money into a savings account. I pay my doctor and dentist bills from this. Self-managed health? Yeah, like superannuation. Why aren't we going that path? I think more and more people are but going course, that path. But of course,
3: unfortunately, he's not getting the 30% rebate. No, right. he's not so, getting it. So we're penalising the savers like him. Yes, who and are actually the, doing a yeah. good thing.
1: Uh, it's interesting you talk about costs, too, in terms of surgeons and anaesthetists etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, I, have a, I have a good friend who has been doing something to, similar to what Ryan in Geelong was just saying about how he's put the money that he would already have put into a private health. Uh, company. He's been saving that money himself. He had to have a knee reconstruction a couple of years ago. Uh, and he went out and, and basically sold his services to the lowest bidder. <laughs> yeah. He went and saw well, a number which, of specialists is, and just said, well, what, what will you do that surgery for? Yeah. And they, they came back to him and said, I'll do it for five grand. Someone said four. Someone else said three. went, sold to the so lowest like, You are the guy I'm so going with. So check
3: Gumtree for the best. <laughs> it have a
2: system. we could have a system. System like that, if if the insurers got out of the way, because you could simply have um, see. I don't know whether people understand, but surgeons in private hospitals are employed. They're like barristers in chambers. They they turn up as contractors to the private hospitals, unlike doctors in public hospitals who are all employed yeah. by the hospital. So they're independent contractors. They're just like barristers, and they can set whatever fee they like, and the pub the private hospital has to either cop that. Or let them go somewhere else to a competitor and set up in a competitor hospital. Now they can do that because they assume that the privately insured patients will will pay the for cost. it anyway yeah. yeah now once you remove that. The doctors are going to be a bit hungrier. The surgeons are going to be hungrier, oh, yeah. aren't
3: they? Yeah. Well, well there will a be, economics. And, and yeah, the, the basic economics of that are that we've got this crazy system where we're overpaying in the private sector, underpaying in the public sector, and that has to do with the various freezing of uh, of uh, Medicare rebates. And of course, the colleges, um, in restricting the numbers going through, have done themselves a great financial service. But when you're uh, yeah, are these people who really want a life? We do have an incredible story of overwork as as Nick points out um, and can we get to some balance here where we have more surgeons where it becomes a bit more like general practice where there is a bit of competition and people aren't wrecking their own lives.
1: There's a text actually. It says, I am a surgeon. Your comments regarding waiting times are terribly naive. Waiting times in my specialty are measured in years for non-urgent elective surgery, which nevertheless impacts significantly on... Q-O-L, quality of life, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the paediatric demographic and in particular in rural areas. Have a look at the Swiss model, um, the, sorry, have a look at the Swiss public slash private model. I myself have been a beneficiary of this. The bureaucracy of both public and private, private systems are a horrendous waste we need to wake up and then actually
2: Doctors never like management they never like management they they see management as a passing trade you know management will be gone in a few years we'll deal with the next lot of managers I mean they've never had respect for managers but the fact is that managers get the cost of their prosthesis down in public health because they negotiate bulk prices and the Privates can't, isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, privates can't do that. So they go and whinge to the federal government about we can't get lower
3: prices. Yeah, exactly. I'm mean, It's the case, you know, as we used to say, of privatise your profits and socialise your losses. And it's management who achieved that for the doctors, not not the doctors. And the Swiss point is that Switzerland, uh, in comparison with Germany, which has a complex system, but it's a very expensive healthcare system, even by Swiss standards. In
1: terms of uh, for for public money that's, that's paid?
3: In terms of both public,
1: public and, private and private money. Nick, you look like you want to say something.
0: Well, I was just thinking we ought to listen to what our surgical texter has said because he's pointing out, and he didn't mention which speciality, but it implied paediatric surgery. Um, and I'd be astonished if paediatric surgery really had a waiting list that blows out to years. Um, but if there really are uh, waiting times in any forms of surgical intervention that are going into many years, yeah. then that's completely appalling for any public system.
1: Yeah, it is. It is appalling. And, and you sort of wonder if that's the reason why... why private health companies got going in the first place was that you know we obviously weren't doing it well enough and perhaps we we've now moved into a situation where they're not as needed, or they have abused the privilege.
2: Well, if you've got cancer, cancer in Melbourne, where do you go? You go to one of the best cancer centres, the, the, the comprehensive cancer centre, you know, one of the best facilities in the world in Melbourne, a public facility. You don't need private cancer treatment, and that's increasingly the case, isn't
3: it? I mean, yeah. yeah. In fact, the um, it wasn't so much that the private system evolved out of a failing. Uh, public, public system. system it's much more the other way around uh, if you go right back to the 1970s when we introduced medibank
1: a couple of quick texts to wrap this conversation i feel we could go all night but uh, we have to wrap uh, one that says i needed an ent procedure through my four thousand per year private cover gap was going to be three and a half thousand and a six-week wait anyway through the public it was zero cost and only an eight-week wait for the same surgeon so in the end, what, what was system. the point? Uh, and then it says recently had a knee replacement, four and a half thousand out of pocket, but total clock cost including rehab would have been thirty two thousand. So I would not give up my private cover. Well, private
2: this rehab's another rot, isn't it? We haven't got time to talk about no. private rehab.
1: Private rehab? Mm. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, yeah. another
2: rot. I mean they <laughs> make they made one point two billion these insurers. Uh, In the last year, they got 11 billion out of us as taxpayers and they made 1.2 billion profit. Hmm. They pay the CEO of Medibank Private up to four and a half million a year. I want to ask you a quick question.
1: Ian, do you have private health cover? Uh, No. Right. And when did you stop doing that?
3: Uh, Never really took it up. Never really took it up. And when I was uh, very well paid, I used to pay the. the, the Medicare levy surcharge. And, you know, the, the question being begged is who should have it? And I've, I've sometimes said, well, look, if you're over 85, if you're overweight, if you're a heavy smoker, have frequent unprotected sex, uh, and don't look after yourself pretty well, perhaps it's a pretty good deal.
1: That's for a you. pretty unusual person, too, by the way, that yeah, fulfills yeah, all of you, those you, categories. You, you
3: will
2: do well. Though. Well, childbearing is. It's oh, good but, yeah. to have it if you're going to have, if you're a woman having children. Oh, yeah.
1: My apologies to those texts we didn't get to and to the calls. Um, We've been kind of overwhelmed. I have a feeling that you may need to fly back again at some point from Canberra, Ian, but we totally appreciate you doing that for us this evening. Uh, Ian McCauley, he's a lecturer in public sector finance and public policy at the University of Canberra, our special edition of Writs and Cures tonight, looking... Uh, the private health insurance system. Bella thank you very much. Pleasure, Lindy. Bella Shea is a Melbourne lawyer. And Dr Nick Carr, can you speak to your colleagues tomorrow? I doubt it. Uh, he's a Melbourne GP.
0: Hopefully they'll still be talking to me. <laughs> Hopefully
1: they will be. Uh, this has been Ritz and Cures.